Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, life with a baby behind bars. An exclusive look at the mothers and babies unit at Auckland Women's Prison. Then an amazing interview with a global expert in the ethics of artificial intelligence. I don't think we need to be concerned about machines taking over. I think we need to be concerned about capitalism becoming so central, power becoming so centralized that regular folks just don't have a chance to compete. And what will Grant Robertson deliver in his final budget of the parliamentary term? Thousands and thousands of us just don't have enough money for food. I'm genuinely worried as to what would happen if there is not a clear response to that in this budget. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first, five months from the election, one of New Zealand's most prominent farmers has announced he's standing for Parliament. It comes amid massive wrangles over water quality, land use and he waka eke noa, the government's plans to price farm emissions. Andrew Hoggard was until this week the President of Federated Farmers and now he's standing for ACT in the Rangi TK seat, although he's only pursuing the party vote. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. Why act and not national? Yeah, I've had that a bit this week. Mm. Um, I guess it basically it's a party that's always sort of I've shared the principles with. Um, so smaller government, uh, you know, liberal values, and I guess what I've you know in the past I may have voted national occasionally, but you know what I've seen in the last six years is a, a cohesive party that's stuck to its principles that have been focused, you know, and. I just felt like it was, you know, A, a team, first of all, I wanted to support. Mm. I wanted to support the party. Um, and then when the opportunity came up of joining it, um, that's, you know, I thought I thought about it and thought, yes, it's a good opportunity to carry on doing the sort of uh, advocacy work that I've been doing for farmers yeah. and trying to push for some of those changes and improvements and just, yeah, making farmers feel better. One of the things that I'm most concerned about right now is the lack of confidence in the farming community and if I can do something to help improve that I think it'll be a job well done. What are the main agriculture policy differences between National and ACT? Uh, I haven't actually had much of a chance to read everyone's policies yet. I think um, for me the thing, key thing will be driving that real change uh, on some of the issues around uh, the RMA especially. Mm. I think that's going to be play a significant role, you know, of what was what the government's proposed legislation mm. is. Um, that would be majorly concerning mm. to me and a lot of farmers up and down the country if that were to be forced through. Uh, so what I've seen of X policy so far, you know, it sort of fits with where I think it needs to go. Uh, in terms of, yeah, I just... To me, it's the party is one that I, I just feel is going to promote real change. Mm. Um, there's a lot of similarities in the in the detail um, between National Act on Agriculture, but there, there will be some differences and we'll be I believe we'll be announcing our agricultural policies at right. the field days. OK. I, I want to ask you about um, some of the detail around farming emissions in a yep. couple of minutes. Um, so you signed up to Act in 2019, but until now you've kept it quiet. Did you disclose it to anyone in government when you were acting on behalf of Federated Farmers, that you're a party member for ACT? No. Did you disclose it to anyone in Federated Farmers? No, I just kept it to myself. I, didn't, I don't think many people in ACT even knew I was a member of ACT. So I was never an active member of parliament, uh, the party. It was just at that time I felt 
they were doing great work mm. that um and you know i'm often talking to farmers and saying hey if you like what we're doing please support us right and for me it was just a a personal decision on i like what this party's doing i like what david's doing i just felt you know i'd be a hypocrite if i didn't show that support to them like um you know, I'm asking farmers yeah. to show their support for should federated you, farmers. Should you have disclosed it? I don't think so, um, because it's just a per personal politics thing for me. But um, how's anyone to know now that when you were negotiating with the government on behalf of federated farmers over Hewaka Ekenoa, that you were acting in the interest of federated farmers and not in the interest of... So with federated farmers, what I've got to do is represent the view of the organisation. Mm. And so there is 24 provinces. Um, they our provincial presidents put forward mm. a policy and I'm the one that has to, whether I like it or not, and there's been a few that I haven't liked, but I've had to go and put that public face on and argue for it. So you believe you acted ethically? I believe I acted ethically. I would challenge every, you know, there's been information that ACT could have had a field day with. Mm. Um, that, like what? Oh, I can't say because then it'd be breaking that confidence of those meetings I was in. Uh, but I kept it to myself. I, I knew that, no, I'm here for Federated Farmers now. You know, I'm pretty good at being able to wall things off, you know, compartmentalise stuff. And, you know, it's one, I guess it's, you know, hangover from the rugby days of what stays on the field. I, I guess, play, yeah, yeah, sure. There are just lot, there's lots of attention on, on the perceptions around conflicts yeah. of interest at the moment. And, and I suppose lots of attention from people who think, oh, well, you may have well acted, you know, entirely ethically, but it's whether or not you are perceived to have, to have yeah, acted Yeah, and I, I guess for those people that know me, they would, I would assume, realise, you know, generally in how I act and everything, it's pretty straight up, straightforward. Um, there's not a lot of guessing as to what I'm thinking. Okay then, let me ask you a straightforward question. Is climate change real? Yes. You were asked that exact same question in December and you said probably. So what has changed between December and now? My ability to answer a question better and looking back at that, what I was trying to explain there was I'm not a climate change scientist. Um, I've spoke, and I guess what I went on to say was I've spoken to climate change scientists they and my discussions with them mm. you know i went away from those discussions going these are straight up honest people they're explaining it and yeah i'll take their word for it so you know i don't believe people should be saying they believe in something when they don't actually fully understand the science or anything behind it you know would we run around saying we all believe in the theory of relativity we're not astrophysicists so you know for me it's like accept the scientific consensus and it was right. yeah i did a poor job of answering a question okay back then you've you, you you've answered that succinctly now what act climate policies will help to reduce the negative impact of climate change events on farmers in new zealand so i think uh the key thing will be the more of a focus around adaptation so you know we, we we've got the emissions trading scheme mm -hmm. that is the scheme that will you know sort of cap the emissions and drive, you know, where we need to get to in terms of the long-lived gases. Um, in terms of, you know, and there needs, we've got to recognise that as a country, you know, this, we're dependent on the rest of the world doing their part as well. Mm. And nothing, if we were to shut down our agricultural industry here in New Zealand, it's not going to change anything globally. But we can focus on improving the adaptate, so improving the resilience of our infrastructure around the country. Mm of um, providing, you know, 
I think, uh, good adverse events plans for farmers mm -hmm. in terms of being able to, you know, have plans in place around if but, but things go wrong. But significantly reducing emissions? I don't, th the thing that I always cha get challenged with is, oh, we've got to do something. And I would argue that our farmers are already the most efficient in the world. We're already doing something. Mm. Um, but farmers make up 50% of New Zealand's Well, we don't emissions. make up 50% of the warming though. And you've got to remember, uh, methane is a short-lived gas. It mm. breaks down over 12 years. Mm. Which Our, is why we've split the gases off yes, under exactly. Hewaki. Yes, exactly. That's a good policy. And having that a different approach to the different gases is a smart way to do it. And, you know, our methane emissions haven't increased since right. 2006. They've actually decreased. So that composition in the atmosphere mm. is the same. So we're not adding to the problem. And I think there's, you know, by making small reductions by 2050, we can ensure that New Zealand agriculture, we can say with a hand on heart, mm. we're not adding to warming. I mean, th these are the numbers from Newsroom. Farmers make up 1.16% of New Zealand's population, 5.5% of GDP, 48% of greenhouse gas emissions. You're comfortable with that? Well, again, that's measured on that, the methane being taken in the same context as long-lived gases. Mm. So yeah, I'm comfortable with that because I, our agricultural sector provides a hell of a lot for this country. It, you know, um, I think it's something like 60% or more of our export, uh, or maybe it's 80% of our export produce comes from their primary sector. Mm. And so, you know, it, the place I want to get to is, is rather than focusing on the emissions, is focusing on the warming impact. And that warming impact, if we're the able to... The warming impact will only get worse if we don't do something about the emissions collectively. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's the warming impact from agriculture, mm. the short-lived gas is different from the long-lived gas. It's yeah. only a small reduction that's required. Which is, like I said, reflected in Hewaka Ekenoa. So yep. you lobbied the government on behalf of federated farmers to take an industry-led approach to emissions pricing on farms. The government agreed to Hewaka Ekenoa and effectively adopted the proposals, and now having delayed pricing for however many years and excluding agriculture from the ETS, you've now come out against the scheme you helped to introduce. What does that say about your integrity? So me as an individual or? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was doing a job at the time for Federated Farmers. So that was So you lobbied position. for Hewaka Ekenoa, they yep. introduced it. So as Federated Farmers, yeah. We'll, we'll and now you're against it. Well, it, how it's come about, and I don't know if we've got time for it this morning, <laughs> but I would say this process hasn't been one that's been conducted in good faith. Mm. You know, it was originally supposedly a government industry partnership. You look at ministers' statements recently, they talk about it being an industry initiative. So the government, you know, the government parties themselves, all the way through, they were involved in all the discussions. Yeah. And then right at the end they said, oh no, we can't be part of the final proposal. And so they were pushing the industry down well, a path. I'm talking about your, your, your involvement here though. I mean, you, you were very much involved with... Well, I wasn't on the steering group. To, yeah, you're right. But, 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 but lobbying for Hewaka Ekanoa in the first place, right? And, yep. and, and we've ended up in a point where you have the government's lowest possible levy price for farmers. They've increased the number of trees that can be planted and offset as part of that program. But you've come out against the very program you lobbied to introduce. So, I mean, what Act's saying is let's do what our trading partners, uh, yeah. our top five trading partners are also pushing for or, or are going to do. We'd mm. copy them. I mean, in terms of where it's at at the moment, I don't mm. know where it's at at the moment because... It's disappeared off into government. No one knows where it's going. I think the government is finding out how difficult this will actually be. And there was so much we didn't actually know at the start. This yeah. process has been really useful for finding out what actually will be the true costs. 
So right at the start, we yeah. did not know that reducing by 10% would take out 20% of our sheep and beef farms. Right. So it's that work has led to... We've developed our thinking we've as we've done more this work. Information. Yeah. Um, you said at the start of the interview, uh, one of the reasons you were drawn to act is you believe in ACT's principles, you believe in small government. So I checked how much the government has spent supporting farmers through mycoplasma bovis, $435 million so far. Yep. You lobbied on behalf of Federated Farmers for funding for communities smashed by the cyclone this year. It's likely that funding will reach to the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not really small government, is it? No, but it's... Uh Small government is, in my view, small government is doing what only government can do. So only government could play a, a role in coordinating a disease outbreak mm. in terms of an eradication. Only government can effectively respond nation or over such a wide regional area to a natural disaster. Uh, only government can come out with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars when the industry yeah. desperately... But, I mean, the what the government doesn't need to be doing is things like trying to tell all our companies how to market. There's a whole range of things where the government's involved in right now where I personally don't think that it's a valuable use of their time. Mm. I think the government resources could be better focused on dealing with only the things that, that they can do well, mm. that is important for, you know, really important for all New Zealanders. Mm. So that's where I'd like to see the, the effort and the focus placed. It's going to be a fascinating election campaign. Before we let you go, I just wanted... Have you signed up for Groundswell? No. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Good luck. That is ACT Rangi TK candidate. You'll have to get used to that yep. phrase. Andrew Hogarth. After the break on Q&A, Babies Behind Bars, an exclusive look inside the mother's unit at Auckland Women's Prison. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back. Thousands of children will wake up this morning with one of their parents in prison. But in a specialised unit of Auckland Women's Prison, the babies will wake up with their mums. Q&A reporter Indira Stewart approached Corrections and was granted exclusive access to the Mothers and Babies Unit to find out what life is like for babies behind bars. Most would think a prison is no place for a child. But this Auckland women's prison has been welcoming babies and raising them inside for the past decade. Control, can I have gate four, please? Taylor Yandel is the prison director and says the babies who live here in a special unit are treated like guests. They are innocent, they are, um, you know, like they, we try and make sure that we are providing them every opportunity that they would have whilst they are in here um, as, a, as a child they're not um, penalised for being in here. They're not disadvantaged. And they're not prisoners here? No, they're not. Tell me what the babies are like. Oh, they're gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, so um, different personalities. Um, it's, it's so nice to see some of them grow, um, get more confident. Um, definitely is a highlight, I think, for me sometimes, is going and seeing them and seeing how much they've developed over time. The Mothers and Babies unit here is just a short walk from Taylor's office. Prisoners who are pregnant or who have a young baby can apply under a strict criteria to serve their sentence here. By law, all babies in the prisons must leave by the age of two. Mary's son was just four months old when she entered prison last year. There's like a whole process. So yeah, it was a bit of a while until he actually got to be with me. So tell me what your first day was like here in the Mothers and Babies unit. It was real emotional. I was so emotional and I think it was 
different for him too because he was wondering like, where am I? I put him in his cot, but I just couldn't stop staring at him. So I was just like, oh my gosh, like I got my baby here with me. Is it okay? Mary was sentenced for a range of convictions, including aggravated robbery, theft and assault. She's honest about her past, but is trying to stay positive for her future. Is there much regret for some of the actions that we're taking that have led you here? Yeah, yeah. I'm on the flip side of things and I'm learning and I'm growing. My upbringing wasn't the best. I had my struggles with growing up and then, yeah, I made some pretty not very wise decisions. Yeah, I guess I wasn't in the best place. What is that? Being inside means Mary is separated from her oldest son. Like her, the majority of women in prison are the primary caregivers in their families. We have a lot of mothers, we have a lot of sisters, um, aunties, uh, a lot of them um, still hold quite a dominant role within their whānau whilst they are in our care. Um, so it is really important for us to make sure that we maintain those connections even though they are in our care. Data from Corrections found 75% of women prisoners have experienced family violence, sexual assault and rape. Three quarters were also diagnosed with a mental health condition within the past year. 66% of our women prisoners are Māori. The resilience, I think, for some of these, behind some of these wahini, um, the level of resilience for them to um, essentially still function and be a pivotal part of their whānau and actually still... Um, be able to contribute to their whānau. They're still wanting to engage in education, engage in programs, um, make sure that they are doing everything that they can here to make sure that they can provide for their whānau when they do get released. Thank you. In a year from now, Mary's baby will have to leave the prison unit. If she serves her full sentence, he'll be seven years old by the time she gets out. I'm not trying to count down the days, but it is something that I've kind of had to prepare myself for trying to put things in place for him so when he eventually does leave, in the back of my mind, I know I've done the best I could to set him up to succeed out there. Is it hard to think about? It, it is, it really is when I think about it, but it's something that I have to prepare myself for, so. The goodbyes are hard for everyone. Not just myself, but as my staff who actually specifically work in that area, um, you do become quite attached. It's not always possible that timing-wise, with regards to sentences and that, that they are able to um, leave at the same time as baby. Um, but where it is possible, we do um, try and facilitate that. Taylor says if Mary can put in the work needed, she could be before a parole board with the chance of leaving much sooner. Mary says she wants to turn her life around. Just to be stable and be reliable, provide for them in like a good way, the right way. And yeah, I just want to be just that person for my sons. I want them to grow into young, strong men and good men and just have good values, respect women, respect your elders, um, love people, you know, be kind. What's one thing you'd change about your past today? Just, um, just to actually just stop and think, like everything has a consequence. Mary's baby will join the roughly 17,000 children in Aotearoa with parents in prison.
We know from our research that children who have parents in prison are around nine, nine and a half times more likely to one day become incarcerated themselves. However, we don't see our children as New Zealand's future prisoners. We don't see our children as New Zealand's future statistics. We see them as New Zealand's future leaders. Karina Thompson is the Senior Mentoring Coordinator at Pillars. The charity has been supporting children of prisoners and their families for the last three decades. These are some of the young people she's worked with who grew up with parents in prison. They're now calling on the government to urgently put care plans in place for kids with parents behind bars. Currently there is no such legislation that safeguards young people or far know when a parent is sent to prison or on a community sentence. We would love to see families and young people co-design these care plans that, that, that get put in place for long-term outcomes. Well, there are some people in New Zealand who might think, well, you know, you've done the crime and it's not our responsibility to um, think about, you know, the consequences of your children. All Kiwis want a safe and effective justice system. All Kiwis want a safe and happy society. The way that we do that is by following the evidence. We know from global research, from local research, it is consistent that when families are able to maintain those strong relationships, it reduces reoffending, it reduces reincarceration, it also reduces intergenerational incarceration. The data also shows the majority of mothers who raised their babies in prison don't reoffend. Strengthening relationships with their kids motivates change. Do you worry at all about normalising prison for some of these children? I think it's not so much around normalising prison, it's more, um, from my perspective, it's more maintaining a relationship um, and making sure that um, we are not subjecting the baby or the mother to unnecessary trauma um, around that. And the women here are not forgotten on Mother's Day. This year we are planning for our wahine um, to have a cake for each wing um, and we are providing um, cards for them to send out to their children and loved ones as well. They get a gift pack, which is um, a pack of donated goods through um, our chaplaincy service and other various community groups they donate. It's Mary's first Mother's Day in prison and she's determined to break the cycle for her sons. She says having her baby with her has given her hope for their future. It's made me realise that it's, it's a start to something new. My life I have with my children now it's a whole different beginning, so life's not really over for us, it's only just starting. Yeah, there's so much things that we can, we're going to do together, so much things for us to see. And dearest Stuart with that report. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call my. These are our main platforms, you can email us if you like, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Next, the promise and pitfalls of artificial intelligence, a fascinating conversation on the digital revolution. Tēnā welcome back. We want to throw you a pop quiz. So have a look at the screen. This guy, this woman, and this woman. Answer? None of them are actually people. Those are images generated by artificial intelligence, approximations of human beings built using pattern recognition technology fed by data from millions of images online. Let's have a look again. Yeah, none of these people actually exist. 
In the last few months since the release of ChatGPT, conversations around artificial intelligence have taken on a greater prominence, with many in the tech community signing an open letter calling for a six-month pause in AI development. Johnny Penn is an assistant teaching professor of AI ethics and society at the University of Cambridge. He was visiting New Zealand this week for the Future State event, and I asked him to assess the current state of AI development. I think the one way to separate kind of fact from fiction, in my view, uh, about the future of AI and where we are now, is we have a very powerful set of tools that are, you know, if you've never come across the tools before, you can think of them as kind of pattern recognition on steroids. So it can notice things that maybe a group of 10,000 humans, if they really put their minds to it, could notice. But this is just an algorithm off the shelf, you know. Mm. So we've got this, this fantastic tool uh, that some see as fantastic enough to treat as sentient, as, as kind of cognitive, as akin to, you know, our, our own neural architecture. And I challenge that. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the tools aren't incredible, but they just aren't incredible in the same ways that, that the human beings are. Yeah, unpack that for me. Why do you challenge that? One of the reasons is, you know, the field of AI historically has only been kind of marginally interested in the brain. They like to mimic it, they like to borrow from it, but they're not interested in copying it one for one. Uh, and so, you know, the brain is a chemical engine, you know, and an AI isn't interested in those dynamics necessarily, it's interested in the dynamics of thought. And so we're mimicking certain aspects, you know, our, our, our abilities to be rational, mm. you know, is trying to distill what we see there. And that's, that's a phenomenal project, uh, but it's only a portion of human intelligence that we're trying to kind of copy, you know. Mm. Uh, we're not copying empathy. Mm. We're not copying sympathy or compassion or, or other human parts of our cognition. And so we lose some of that, you know, when we're just copying the kind of hyper-rational aspects of ourselves. So to go to the extreme end, the very extreme end of some of the doomsday predictions, does this mean, in your view, we don't need to be concerned about machines taking over? I don't think we need to be concerned about machines taking over. I think we need to be concerned about capitalism becoming so central, power becoming so centralized that regular folks just don't have a chance to compete. Mm. And who does that serve? It doesn't serve the majority, you know. And I think for small and medium-sized businesses, for uh, even small and medium-sized institutions, universities, you know, that are struggling to make budgets, teachers and keeping teachers employed, things like this, the idea that one set of, or a small set of corporations are going to replace all jobs with AI just doesn't seem, that seems like a bigger worry than killer robots. Mm. And thankfully the community is kind of, of AI researchers and, and people that do AI ethics like I do have come around to that. There's still in the, in the far future concern that we'll reach a point that, that, human, that machines will become, you know, that people allude to it as sentient or, or something more cognitive. But Historically, I just don't think we're close to that at all. Let's talk about some of the concerns within the community. So in recent months, we've seen significant pushback to AI from many in the tech scene. The likes of Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak have called for a six-month pause yeah. in AI development. Jeffrey Hinton, the so-called godfather of artificial intelligence, has quit Google warning of artificial intelligence's risk. So where do you stand on the present dangers? So... I didn't sign the letter for a pause, in part because I think we should take that idea of restraint, hold it and hit it with a hammer and break it into a thousand pieces. Right. And use that, that idea of, of, of holding back and being more deliberate uh, with precision. So in what areas ought we to be concerned? 
you know, in England, in Boston, uh, uh, local municipalities have passed uh, moratoriums on facial recognition technologies for government use because they say this just isn't worth it. You know, the pros do not outweigh the cons. Mm. And so um, I developed this idea of what I'm calling kind of rest engineering, that in the same way that music has structural rests and notes and you need to design with both, with the future of AI, what I'm advocating for is that we kind of deliberately avoid some uses and focus on the areas that we know it can be useful. And broadly, uh, those are, uh, the uses that we ought to avoid are around predicting social phenomena. Because if you've, let's say, predicting someone's uh, likelihood to succeed in school, if you've ever had a teacher that inspires you, you know that your you know, anticipated trajectory can, diff can be much different from where you get to go if someone really shows up for you. Yeah. And so if we read the future too, kind of, uh, with too much expectation mm. as if our, our destinies are written, I think we'll actually we'll, we'll limit ourselves. Right. Uh, and so... Yes to using AI for its strengths, but not using it around areas that are just kind of more pseudoscientific than, than actual science. So to be clear, you don't think a six-month pause would be effective? I mean, a six-month pause is just, it's arbitrary and infeasible. Mm. Who, who's going to go for that? And I think even the people that signed it know that. Yeah. But if they really believe that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of yes-anding. I'm saying, okay, if that's what you want, where in particular, mm. what uses are you so worried about? And why can't we rally politicians around those issues? So you're concerned about centralization, around mm -hmm. the decisions for AI's futures being made by a very select, elite few. Yeah. If we're to follow the rest engineering principles, who should decide where we do and don't use AI? Okay, so this is the funny thing. You know, I talk about the fact that people are burdened right now. Mm. We live in a moment of multiple overlapping crises, with mental health crisis, the climate crisis, racial uh, justice movement, things like this. And the idea behind AI in principle is that it'll save us time. And we need that time to solve all these other crises, right? Mm -hmm. But my, my, the thought behind rest engineering is that if we don't start kind of now, today, finding ways to give people time mm -hmm. to step back and reflect on where the world's going, then we're gonna rush into something that we don't actually want. You know, so in the same way, historically, that the, the weekend was kind of formalized through the Industrial Revolution, we have to think about this present moment as deserving of social innovation. Right. We've got this technical innovation. What is the social innovation that matches it? It could be, you know, the three-day weekend. It could be for parents out there, paid childcare, depending on what country you're in. But some sort of, um, you know, widely available reprieve from this onslaught of obligation. If that, like, if AI is truly here to save us time and to improve our productivity, prove it. Right. That's what I'm saying. Okay, but 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 back to my question: Who should be responsible for introducing um, a framework for areas in which it should and shouldn't be used? Yeah. So, so, so who should decide where the moratorium should stand? The fun part is, I mean, so that's the, the full answer to that question is kind of kaleidoscopic. It should be all, all, all of the above and more. There will inevitably, I'm sure, be a kind of global AI regulator, regulatory watchdog. You know, many people have called for that. It'll probably come. But that is to, to put all of our hopes and dreams in top-down regulatory governance. You know, that addresses some of the problems like centralization of power. But ultimately, the thing I get excited about is bottom-up countercultural responses because right. we're already seeing it to give you a quick example when people are getting kind of fatigued with digital tools 
So in automobile manufacturing, people have said, we don't actually want screens in the car. They're dangerous, they distract us when we're driving. We want knobs, good old knobs. Yeah. The humble knob yeah. has a purpose. And I think the future of AI is gonna have a lot more humble decision-making in it. Uh, to give you another quick example, for young people dating today, you know, almost as a rule, uh, online dating apps are you know mm. what one would turn to for people of all ages, not just yeah. young people. And there's a new uh, kind of analog alternative called the pair ring that is just a teal color ring that you wear that says to the world that you're single. It starts conversations, and it solves a problem with a primitive, simple, unsophisticated, reliable mm. solution that you know, in in contrast, the kind of digital ethos seems over-engineered. And, and more sophisticated than we need. And the, the reason I call it rest engineering is we have to be deliberative of, as in music, where we put the rests and where we put the notes. It's interesting to hear someone who's dedicated their working life and study to technology, talking about the importance of less technology in our yeah. lives. Well, it's, I mean, like, look, the future of climate uh, instability hmm. is going to force some very tough conversations and some very tough decisions about where we rely on these tools. We've already seen, like with the supply chain mix-up uh, following COVID, you know, automobile manufacturers were it was hard to get a car. Yeah, I don't know if it's hard in this country. It's hard it was, in Canada yeah. to buy a car. Yeah, uh, because if chips aren't available, if the chip supply chains go down, you know, the digital infrastructure mm. goes down. So it's digital infrastructure is not as stable and reliable as people assume. And so as in this country, you've had massive flooding, you've had landslides. In Canada, we have wildfires, we have all sorts of our own problems. To think that we're gonna rely on an, un, a tool set that is not resilient, is it just doesn't add up. Mm. So we have to be thoughtful about where, you know, we have to start having a conversation about threading these aspirations of a kind of ubiquitous automated future with what we know is coming, mm. which is challenge. And, and to try and, you know, as I said, there will be the top-down regulatory mm. solutions, but for regular people to assert their consumer preferences, and I'll give you one final example of what I mean. In the Netherlands, seniors said, we don't want automated checkout, we want to talk to somebody at the supermarket. And so they instituted slow lanes in certain grocery stores where yeah. you can go and have a conversation with your <laughs> checkout person. And yeah. that shouldn't be unimaginable yeah. for the future. And there's not an unexpected item in the bagging area, exactly. which always seems to be my problem. Um, so much of this conversation is dominated by these big figures, by yeah. a select few big figures, the likes of Elon Musk. What, yeah. what do you make of the way that Elon Musk in particular injects himself into these conversations and debates? Look, I've met Elon. Um, I, I understand he is he is exceptionally good at his craft, uh, but I don't I don't go to him first for news on AI. I'll put it that way. Mm. Um, yeah, his think, craft being uh, salesmanship. <laughs> <laughs> he's he sells, uh, uh, and you know he's made a career off of, uh, as with Steve Jobs, you know marketing the mm. hard work of others. Um, it, that is a skill in itself. But you know the people I look to, the, the leaders in, in the AI ethics community, are people like Tim Nick Gebru and Margaret, Margaret Mitchell, who are you know not tech CEOs, mm. who do not have the vested interests that uh, you know the CEOs of AI or of Google and and, and Microsoft and things have. Mm. Um, they're regular people that see a problem and want to solve it. Mm. Um, you know Tim Nick Gebru was fired from Google for trying to solve it. And so the idea, and I, I actually, I push tech journalists on this in particular, the idea that, that 
you know, technological expertise translates to expertise about our future and about our society. I question that link because mm. I don't think it does. I think, as I've said, we need social innovation. Mm. Who does social innovation? You know, care workers, nurses, teachers, regular people yeah. who deal with other regular people and design a world that regular people want to live in. It's interesting to hear you speak with such optimism about our mm -hmm. species and about our societal structure, given some of these challenges, and given what we have seen throughout the digital revolution so far and the way that a select few tech companies have defined the way in which we interact with digital technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had my dark days <laughs> about that, yeah. I think I, I think I got to a point where I thought, you know, there's so much to be worried about already. And to think that now we have to worry about, you know, the mm. centralization of power, the pollution of our information channels with misinformation and AI powered misinformation and disinformation, job loss, things like that. You know, in some sense, I think, and Gen Z are good at this, that there's, we have to avoid the kind of toxic positivity where like everything has to be rosy. We can talk about the dark things that yeah. we have and try and manage them because actually we share these worries and it'll bring us together to share them openly. But also, you know, every generation has their struggles. Our ancestors have dealt with massive amounts of tragedy and pain and have faced incredible obstacles and have adapted. Mm. And so, yeah, we have, we have a lot on our plate, but I think we just have to do the best we can. And in doing the best we can, I think we have to focus on local issues and not get too hyper fixated on the kind of uh, the, the globe itself, because mm. the globe itself is constituted of local places. And we mm -hmm. have to take care of our homes and our schools and our communities first, I would say. And that matters for AI. Mm. Something I was thinking about on the walk over here to join you today was, you know, New Zealand as a country ought to start negotiating. It, they, they do already in some sense, but New Zealanders ought to feel like if AI is gonna be a part of my life, what do I get in return? You know, because as I said, technological innovation comes in, what is the social innovation that matches it? Mm -hmm. And I can give you one final historical example of this. The printing press is often treated as the kind of exemplar of technological determinism. Yeah. It was invented, the world became literate. That's not what happened. It was invented 400 years past, and then there was a push to make uh, elementary school widely accessible. Mm. That's what unlocked the potential for mass literacy. And so in the same way, I'm, I'm in rest engineering, I'm inviting everybody who enjoys rest, which is most people, to think about what are the customs we need? What are the rituals we need? What are the ceremonies we need that have as much charisma and remind us of our joys as much as like binging on TikTok, which is fun, you know, but yeah. we need complementary social alternatives. Mm. That's what I'm kind of pushing for. That is artificial intelligence ethicist Johnny Penn from Cambridge University. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Food prices increased more in the year to April than at any other time in the last 35 years. You don't need the official stats to spell it out. Many New Zealanders are struggling. Ahead of Thursday's budget, I visited the Auckland City Mission's home ground and asked Missioner Helen Robinson to assess the current levels of need. It's always hard to define how bad it is because it all depends on what you're comparing it to. Uh, what I know is that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of family coming to us every week saying they don't have enough money for food. 
and that the impact of that means that uh, kids are getting sick, that uh, relationships are fractured or pressured, it means going to work's difficult, it means learning is difficult. So, so that is always bad. And the reality of what we've seen here at the mission in the last 10 years is that the demand for food, the number of people and the extent of that food insecurity is growing, so it's bad. Um, I could say very, very similarly in terms of housing, the utter, complete lack of affordable housing. Um, there's just not enough. And it's bad if it's one family or one individual, and it's equally bad if it's two or three, and we're in the thousands and thousands. And that is the day-to-day -day reality here at the Auckland City Mission. You have worked for NGOs and charities pretty much your entire life. You were involved with the mission for years before becoming the City Missioner. When you think about those kind of numbers, is there a danger that for someone like you, you become desensitised to need? There's always a danger, um, and, and in this role particularly, there is always dangers. Uh, one of the questions I'm often asking myself is how do I keep my feet to the fire? So how do I genuinely stand in the authenticity of the people that we are seeking here to serve? And the only right or, or ability that I have to even be here today is because of those people. So I work hard at being in direct relationship and connection with people and also our staff. So the mission has 250 staff who every day are working literally with people uh, to hear their stories and hear the reality. And I have that privilege um, of being a big enough organisation that we can understand things of the bigger picture, but actually not so big that the day-to-day -day reality of people is, is just part of my reality. It just sounds kind of glib, but I mean, you still get affected by this stuff. Absolutely. Um, uh, sometimes I wonder I get too affected, uh, very honestly. The, the reality of not only being upset, but a, a deep-seated rage at, at the reality of what is the suffering of so many of our people. Um, and so much of my job is, or and deeper than my job actually, uh, uh, who I am called to be is how do I sit with that reality? How do I be brave enough not to avoid it, to deny it, to walk away from it, but actually be in it and just very simply do the best of what I can today to respond and to harness this extraordinary country that, that is Aotearoa to actually respond to that reality. Can you think of a recent experience or a person you might have met recently that sparked that rage? Um, we have a, uh, one of the things we do here at the Auckland City Mission is provide housing in all kinds of ways and we have a deep commitment to permanent housing. Um, in uh, the last couple of weeks uh, we have suffered the death of one of our people uh, at one of our transitional housing services and um, a young person, so under the age of 25, um, uh, being there with him, uh, being connected to his family, um, certainly being with our staff as they're dealing with that reality. Um, what we see here at the mission is too many people who die and die young, and particularly too many Māori people who die young. I don't have to go far to be in relationship and in connection, so 
uh, the, the, the numbers and the reality of the suffering has a face and a name and it has a reality and uh, certainly particularly for our whanau who are without housing that, that often means that their health is deeply implicated and uh, in some instances literally that people die. Um, I, I long for a reality where there is adequate and enough housing um, and that I know that when we can get to that place then actually uh, health outcomes for our people will just be so much better. Yeah, what do you think of the place that housing holds in New Zealand culture? Um, to have a home, uh, to have a place to belong, to be, uh, have adequate resources, a place that's safe, that's yours and, and however that yours is constructed is part of our deeply human story. We need shelter and we need a place to belong and that uniquely comes together in this word that we call home. Um, now, now that of course has to hold a key place in any culture and certainly here in ours. And I know that it's just wildly prevalent at the moment because we just don't have enough houses. Um, and, and in fact, uh, not only do my feet need to be kept to the fire for that reality, but our collective feet need to be. What do you make of house price chat? It, it's, a, it's a good question and it's a tricky question for me. I often feel like I live in, in multiple realities that I think many people in New Zealand do. Um, uh, there are a lot of people in our country who just simply could not afford a house. So a house price chat is actually uh, the right of the privileged in our country. Um, so uh, I find it difficult and, and it's, it's a challenge actually. In the same instance, I, I think it's the whole house price chat is indicative of, of uh, actually a growing group of people in New Zealand who, who just genuinely can't afford housing. So it, as it's going up, it's actually affecting more and more and more of us. So actually that chat has its place, uh, but it's often difficult to hear it. I want to talk about the housing first strategy because housing first seems like a really common sense approach. You house people and then you work out how to help them in other aspects of their life, but that is not the way that we've always done things. So, exactly right. So the Housing First philosophy says that no matter who you are, where you are, what your background is or life uh, story is, is that the most important thing to do is to house people first. It's one of those things that when you're in it, it doesn't feel like rocket science, but sometimes getting there takes it. We have come from a philosophy in our country that said, gosh, everything needs to be sorted before somebody can get housed, so I need to be well or I need to deal with this issue in my life, or I need to be able to prove that I can sustainably be a holder tenancy. Where actually Housing First says, actually it's just inaccurate. Whatever your value set, whatever philosophy you hold, what the evidence tells us time and time and time again is, support someone as quickly and immediately into an appropriate house that's affordable, and then say, uh, welcome home. This is your home permanently. And in the construct of that conversation, then we say, okay, what's going on? What do you need? How do we create this reality or support you to create this reality where you're here forever and doing well? How much do you engage with politics? 
I think uh, every one of us engage every day, if it's small P or big P really, um, you can't be at the mission without engaging in politics. Um, we are uh, deeply in partnership with our government, whoever that government is, and, uh, and its leadership uh, more broadly and particularly uh, any one government of the day. Uh, we work really hard to encourage New Zealand and, and politics generally just to actually take the heat out of an issue and just to say, let's look at this from the point of view of people who are going without. But, but isn't there a problem in that some of the longer term solutions to poverty in New Zealand require um, strategies that might be politically unpopular in the short term? Absolutely. And uh, I, I certainly think it comes back to a deep sense of uh, what is leadership and um, uh, how can we hold the collective and move forward. So uh, it, it would be naive to think that uh, any one individual or any one party would uh, bravely stand up and do something terrible for them so that they can be voted out tomorrow. Uh, so there is a tension that does need to be held. Uh, we do need leadership in our country. The, the function of government and democracy is a good, healthy, real thing. We want to support that. And the, the tensions inherent in that are important. Uh, all of that being said is that, yes, uh, we do need people and parties that are evidence-led that are deeply willing to listen to people who are particularly not at the table, who are going without, who are suffering, and that when you hear that voice and uh, place a prioritisation for that voice, that that will take you to places where difficult decisions are being made. Let me ask a couple of explicitly political questions then. The Labor government uh, made some big promises regarding poverty when it came to power in 2017. Considering the most recent stats for child poverty, the number of children living in material hardship has effectively plateaued. When you reflect on the language of five and a half or six years ago, do you think they've lived up to their promises? I think it's a, um, I think there's a, a number of different answers that need to say there. I, I will always value and support any individual or any leader that, that puts a prioritisation to dealing um, to the reality of poverty and to responding to those needs. And I have yet to meet uh, a individual or a party that hasn't tried. What I do know is that the reality of poverty in our country is the result of 40 years of underinvestment. And that is every kind of party that has occurred in our country in the last 40 years. And a really, really good example of that is the state of housing in our country. We are where we are because we, had, we as a country, so that yes, that is our government, but it is more broadly our country, have underinvested in the provision of affordable housing for 40 years. Mm. So we are now paying that cost. So it's a too simple question or analysis to say what is the result of that party or what is the result of that party. Again, we need to look at the last 40 years and it's a really, really good example to say what is the evidence? We know we need more affordable houses. What is that going to take? And uh, very, very clearly New Zealand needs to make a choice to invest in housing and we're going to do that by increasing taxes or increasing our debt or spending money on housing and not spending it on somewhere else. 
I, I can't see any other but those three options. Yeah. And until New Zealand is willing to actually be brave and courageous, that what we will see happening is just more people being homeless and the impact of that becoming more sharper and acerbic. So it's really important that New Zealand sees the core drivers of issues are about our long-term story that speaks to the heart of, of actually the value set of our country. So this is about uh, how do we respond to the reality of, of poverty? How do we acknowledge the impact of colonisation? How do we actually see that, that poverty in our country has both a colour and it has a gender? And until New Zealand is brave enough and courageous enough to actually face ourselves in the, in the mirror and see our own shadows, it's very, very easy to cast judgment on any one individual or any party. How do you see um, the distinction between the role of a charity and the role of the state when it comes to solving some of these complex issues? I think a very simple answer is we need each other. Um, I know here at Tapui Atawai at the Auckland City Mission, uh, without our government partners, both on a day-to-day -day reality and, and more broadly that government, we just couldn't do what we need to do. Um, the Auckland City Mission has a rich and deep history and a, actually a gift to offer our country because of who we are, because of who we're connected to, because of our whakapapa, because of the work we do. And that uniqueness could never be done by a big entity like the government. So, so we need each other. And this building here at Home Ground is a perfect example. We're um, sitting in a building that is able to offer something so incredibly precious and beautiful to our country. And just to ground that specifically, we have 80 apartments here. Uh, that are for people, uh, 40 of whom literally would have been on the streets. This is the first of its kind in the country, a single site supportive housing. Uh, now, we, have, we uh, were able to say, uh, government, partner with us, please. We can do this, and actually our country needs to do it, but we can't do it without you. So literally half of the cost of those apartments was funded uh, through our government. So it's a, it's a good example of actually saying we need to do it together. There's a good tension that exists too, because we can say, um, government, uh, this is what we're seeing, this is what we're hearing. I know this is what you're saying, but this is what we're hearing. And so in that conversation, there is a real opportunity for dialogue, for change, for conversion, actually. Mm. Finally then, the budget is coming up. Is there a, a policy or an allocation that you would like to see prioritised? It's almost an impossible question to ask me when I see so much need. Um, you know, there, there's three areas that we can ground here. Um, one of the growing areas of sad, tragic growth in our country is the reality that thousands and thousands of us just don't have enough money for food. I'm genuinely worried as to what would happen if there is not a clear response to that in this budget. Uh, what we will see, uh, and I think we're already seeing it, is hundreds and thousands of New Zealanders who don't have enough money for food. And uh, hunger creates deep problems within our society, both obviously on an individual level and on a collective level. Uh, the more hungry we are, the more we will see unrest. 
Can I just ask on that point, what would an appropriate response to that be in, in a policy sense? So there's a whole variety of responses. So um, uh, food security is a game of income over expenditure, so we need to see incomes lifted and we need to see expenditure managed. Uh, very, very specifically though, organisations uh, across the country are having to step into the gap uh, of responding to people who don't have enough money. And in the absence of benefit levels rising, which uh, I would like, that's a very, very clear policy response. I suspect it may not happen. <laughs> but in the absence of that happening, that uh, places and organisations do need to be supported. Our people need to be fed. That is Helen Robinson, the Auckland City Missioner. Hey, before we go, a quick reminder, the budget is on Thursday. We will be broadcasting a live budget special with all the details, so please join us from 2pm on the dot. For now though, Kumatu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching. Hey, Kuna, we will see you Thursday. And hey, happy Mother's Day, Mum. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.